0: Well, uh, we're continuing with our Eight Essential Elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel Series. This is the 97th message in that series, and we are on element 7 of the eight elements. Element 7, part M, going through the alphabet for each letter, and uh, only one have we gone past Z on. Uh, This one, yeah, this one will be actually through the alphabet twice on element 7 here, but... uh, We'll probably be over fifty weeks on Element Seven, but um, so the tendency has been, for uh, in some ways, the last couple hundred years, uh, really maybe in the early nineteenth century, prior to the Great Awakening, there was uh, kind of a a decided uh, decision among most of evangelical leaders to reduce the message of the gospel and especially the cost in order to encourage greater numbers and that trend has continued to this day reaching sort of its climax in the 1970s with the uh, church growth movement and the programmatic uh, gospels and what's in it for you kind of approaches and so forth so what we're really trying to do is do a thorough thorough very thorough look at the gospel uh, which will hopefully uh I don't know if we'll make it under 150 weeks, but we'll definitely keep it under 200 weeks. But um, we are looking at these eight essential elements, because the gospel, had one of the reductions has been we perceive of the gospel as something to get someone to pray uh, a sinner's prayer by at the beginning of their Christian life, and then you perf- perfect yourself by performance and self-effort from the, re- you know, the rest of your life, which is what Paul is addressing in the Galatian letter. So the gospel is something that Christians live by every day. We must reposition ourselves in Christ every day. That, in Galatians 2.20, Paul says, uh, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live by the, in this body, in the flesh, but the, there's two words for flesh that this means, in, in this tabernacle, this tent, this body, I live by faith, that is, trusting in, clinging to, obeying, relying on, following uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, um, and we live out of the power of his resurrection by the Holy Spirit. And the Christian life can't be lived any other way. The Christian life isn't just difficult, it's totally impossible. And, uh, and, and the only way uh, to do it is by the one who, who actually did it our Lord Jesus Christ. So, um, on the front of your page is our typical review of what we covered so far. Um, The eight elements, I did not review them here. They're reviewed on lots of the outlines. Um, And uh, uh, letters B and C review the two sections of the Baptizing the Holy Spirit part of this series that we're doing now. So we're doing kind of two series coterminously. Uh, element seven is we call the first five steps or the pattern of the first five steps in entering Christ's kingdom we're looking at the, fir- the five steps that people took uh, when they started their Christian life most American Christians have taken one to two of those steps uh, among your more charismatic and Pentecostal types they've often taken three of those steps um, unfortunately often uh, what transpired at step one, receiving Jesus Christ, was insufficient and is crippling the rest of the, their attempts to walk the Christian life. And, uh, of course, without uh, the other steps, you're going to be missing vital means of grace, vital tools of grace or delivery systems of grace, vital things that God has wants to give you to empower you to be a follower of Christ such as the power of the holy spirit so all the titles for the first section of this which was the six six weeks was why do we need a greater knowledge of an experience of the holy spirit that's under roman numeral 2b on the front of your sheet the second section that we're in now is called finding and following the biblical pattern in other words the pattern regarding being baptized in the holy spirit what what, uh, the Bible is full of models and patterns. And then, so today, and we've looked at the importance of patterns for the last two weeks. Today, we're going to look at Jesus Christ as the pattern. And uh, if, you, we're gonna, if you flip over, we're actually on the back side of the page already, moving along. Uh, today, we're going to look at the pattern and progression of, of the role or the activity or the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life and ministry of Jesus. Now, that word progression is underlined because of this. What we're going to see often in today's uh, anti-supernatural, natural-minded, Western Christianity, where there's no expectations of radically changed lives, no expectations of healing, deliverance, no expectations of powerful occurrences that are that are destiny benders you might say uh in that culture that came out of the enlightenment and is and prevails through what we've been teaching on on tuesday nights we've been to, t- teaching on four modern approaches to the holy spirit and we've covered the modernist approach uh of liberalism that basically doesn't allow for miracles or so forth and we've covered cessationism and then uh this Tuesday we're going to cover what's called the third wave, and uh, so forth. But so that's kind of we're, you know, what I'm calling the uh, Sunday Bible study special Tuesday night edition, <laughs> so that I can get more of these messages in, and uh, and I appreciate about 18 or so people have been coming and worshiping with us and and having a teaching on Tuesday night. So appreciate the uh, turnout. It's always nice to see people. So anyway. Uh, one of the ideas that is greatly hindering the church today is the idea that you got all there is to get about, of the Holy Spirit when you receive Jesus. And I always say, if you have it all, let's see it all. So if you study the activities of the Holy Spirit, as we did in this series, we looked at one whole message on the activities of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament or the Jewish scriptures. Uh, then we looked at the activities of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, dividing that into the ministry of Christ and the disciples before the, the uh, resurrection and ascension and, and before Pentecost, and then looking at the activities of the Holy Spirit after Pentecost. But then we looked at the activities of the Holy Spirit historically, and uh, because the Holy Spirit has done the same kinds of things uh, throughout the centuries, in every century, in hundreds of documented ways uh, that he did in the first century. So the idea that the Holy Spirit only did these things in the ministry of Jesus or the uh, the ministry of the apostles, we uh, dismantled that idea from both from, from history and documented historical evidence and from scripture and documented scriptural evidence. So today, a kind of a further... Uh, nail in the coffin toward that wrong thinking that, that we're in. Our goal is not to be right, our goal is to empower people. Right? Our, our goal is that Jesus said that He came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. And so many Christians are not living abundantly. And I'm not talking about a prosperity gospel definition of abundance. Uh, it's great if you do well vocationally and if you've learned how to steward and manage and grow finances. That's an important part of the kingdom. Uh, and, and I believe that poverty is overall a curse. I don't believe in the prosperity of gospel approach to riches, but the, the biblical approach of, of six days you shall work and frugality and savings and investments and, and stewardship and all that kind of stuff. But, but God does want his people to prosper financially. But the prosperity the Bible's talking about is so much more. It's the great riches of the, of the fellowship and communion of the Holy Spirit. You know, in Revelation, I love the verse where it says that, I come quickly and my reward is with me. And as you know, I always say, his reward is with him because his reward is him. <laughs> right? So, you know, like, on, whether you like it or not, wherever Greg Weiss goes... Greg Weiss is there. <laughs> you know? And uh, you might not like that all the time, but, but where, where God shows up, God is there. <laughs> and, of course, he's everywhere, but the theologians, of course, talk about his, his manifested presence, where he allows us to to sense his presence, be empowered by his presence, be equipped by his presence, enjoy the rich fellowship of his presence, which is the greatest abundant thing. And when you get that working in your marriage, and you get that working in your uh, family relationships and your single brother's households and, and your overcoming addictions and temptations, and you get that kind of zeal, then that is what Christ came to give you. You were, you were meant to lay down everything for the greatest adventure there ever was. And God actually gives a thing called boredom as a way of helping you know you're not right where you should be with God. When you are right with God, you will never have time nor think about boredom again. (laughs) Um, Boredom is actually God's way. Boredom is a feeling that God gives us when, where we say, there must be something important for me to do. And, uh, you know, when you're a kid, you go, well, I'll go shoot some baskets, or I'll go call my friends and play baseball. But deep down, you're like, that's not it. And until you kind of get out on the water walking with Jesus in the in a radical adventure, your life will yet be boring. And that's why people need drugs, pornography, sleeping too much, being lazy. Uh, it's uh, To not chase zealously the fellowship of God and the, and the ongoing, continuing ministry of Jesus is to waste your life. And it's to have your life be meaningless and vanity. So uh, we're going to look at the role of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' life and his ministry. Both those words are important because, again, God doesn't just want to empower you with the Holy Spirit. So you can cast out demons, prophesy, and have greater intense worship. That's been one of the mistakes of Charismatic and Pentecostal thinking. First and foremost, God wants to empower you with the Holy Spirit to enjoy him. The Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. You cannot have a release of the Holy Spirit going on in your life and not be hungry for Scripture study. You cannot have a release of the Holy Spirit going on in your life and not enjoy worship. Uh, and so forth. Uh, the Holy Spirit will constantly make you a pioneer, uh, never satisfied, never settled, never camping out, always aggressively, actively seeking more. And, you know, it's that kind of encounter uh, that's part of you, know, of, you know, a biblically complete and conversion includes all five steps so that you're in that kind of a position with God where your life is the most exciting adventure and you are overwhelmed with joy inexpressible and thanksgiving every day because you're like, How, how could this have happened to me? I, I, I don't deserve this great a life. I gotta say, I love coffee. All right. So let's go through this in under, understanding that Jesus is, sets a pattern. Everything in the Christian life, what the church is supposed to be, the gospel, truth, how to relate to people, what we're supposed to do in our life, everything Jesus is the pattern, the ultimate pattern. I thank God for Elijah and Moses and Paul and Peter who are secondary patterns as they follow Christ. As Paul said to, in 1 Corinthians 1 11, be an imitator of me as I am of Christ. I thank God for the church in the book of Acts as a secondary pattern, but Jesus is the ultimate model and pattern for the tabernacle, for the gospel, for everything. And We, we covered that a little bit in the last two weeks. We're going to look at it a little deeper today. Uh, So the first thing I want you to know is that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now it's amazing when we get into the doctrine of the Incarnation that we've actually... um, You know, I, I talk to Bible college graduates at Cedarville and other places all the time who don't really understand much about the Incarnation. That is one of the two or three most important foundations of the Christian life. Jesus who is God eternal. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit eternally existed three persons in one being. There was never a time when the son was not. Okay? There was never a time when the begotten son was not. So think figure that one out. He was eternally begotten. Right? Outside and above time before God even created time. And it before is actually our our wrong understanding because it's it transcends be, the word before. Okay, so Jesus became a human being, and he did so the same way Adam and Eve became human beings. God created Adam with the twenty-three chromosomes, the right number of proteins, and the. Th- millions of pieces of DNA uh, information in every cell of his being and so forth, he was created a human being. Adam was created with apparent age. The day he was created, he was about 30 years old. Okay, The stars, there were stars that were created the very second they were created, they were billions of years old. When Jesus created wine at the wedding of Cana, it was aged wine. It was really good wine, not the cheap stuff that high school kids drink or whatever, but, uh, or winos. But um, when Jesus created wine, it had aged the second it was created. Okay, so... Um, Jesus was created a zygote. And a zygote is, is uh, the single celled thing that happens after conception when the sperm and the egg hit. And it wasn't, uh, it's important to understand that in that first cell that was then implanted in Mary's womb was all the DNA and all the chromosomes and essentially no different than Adam in every respect. Except he hadn't aged yet. Whereas Adam was created with age. That's the only difference. Neither of them was created in a sin nature. And of course the other, I misspoke when I said only difference. The other big difference, of course, is Adam was not the eternally begotten son of God. He did not have a dual nature. He was 100% man and 100% God. But Jesus' humanity was 100% man the moment he was conceived. The same way that Adam was. But he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And there was never a time when Jesus was not filled with the Holy Spirit. We'll see Jesus' encounters with the Holy Spirit progress as he progresses in life. But there was never a time that he wasn't full of the Holy Spirit. That's very important to understand. And as we're going to see in point uh, D, uh, or I guess points D and E later in this outline, it's very analogous to the fact that when we are born again, we are born again by the Holy Spirit. And every born-again Christian, whether baptized in the Holy Spirit or not, if they are truly born again, if they show the biblical signs of life, then they are... uh, filled by with the Holy Spirit. And they have the Holy Spirit. Whether or not they've had other encounters with the Holy Spirit that we're going to see Jesus had along his way as well. So let's uh, just look at a couple verses along that lines. Matthew 1. I uh, wish, I you know, I had to... Uh, whenever you see the dot, dot, dots on some of these verses, it's because I only put on uh, the outline what I can fit on the front and back of a page. So sometimes you'd be better off to make sure, you know, I I would tell you that if if people would actually, I doubt this ever happens, or maybe seldom happens, but if people actually spent like 30 minutes re-going over this teaching every week and uh, looking up the scriptures and thinking on them, you would retain not like twice as much, but more like five to ten times as much, and you'd also have much better, better insights. So, the birth of Jesus was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, which means engaged. And by the way, in, in biblical culture, engagement was a very serious covenant that could not be broken easily. It wasn't like we do in our culture. We don't even keep marriage as a very serious covenant. That we break that pretty easily in our culture. But uh, uh, she was betrothed or engaged to Joseph before they came together, which is courteous speak, before they had not had sexual relations. They, weren't, they had not consummated their marriage. Uh, that has to do with covenants. All covenants have ceremonies of enactment and ceremonies of renewal. And the marriage ceremony includes uh, the exchange of vows, the witness of the people on behalf, standing in in God's place. Both the minister and the congregation stand on behalf of God to to uh, to be His tools of grace to empower you in declaring your vows. And declaring in your covenant and so forth, that's why there's has to be a reception and should have music and dancing and wine and so forth and cake. For John Luke and uh, (laughs) some of you guys probably should skip the cake, but uh, (laughs) at least I should. But uh, so uh, you know, you know before they they ceremonially ceremonially enacted the covenant she was found to be with child by the holy spirit which is from a natural perspective impossible which is why when we looked at the four views of the holy spirit the modernist view that does not accept that's based in what philosophy called materialism or naturalism does not accept the virgin birth way back in the 70s lots of people were predicting the current situation where you know, you've got your Episcopalians and your Lutherans and your United Church of Christ and so forth ordaining homosexual ministers and, you know, anything goes and so forth because they first rejected the authority of Scripture and, went, and, and they rejected things like the virgin birth. I read a survey uh, when I was first a Christian in the 70s that like 88% of Episcopalian ministers did not believe in the resurrection or the virgin birth. These things have 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 a habit of staying a little bit longer within with the people in the pews than with the clergy from the cemeteries. I'm oh sorry for reading slip little slip there. Um, She was found to be a child by the Holy Spirit. That's so important. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. In other words, he couldn't break this betrothal that easy. It was the whole town, the whole society would know about it. There, there were implications here. Uh, but when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. The word of is a very important word there in the Greek. Uh, ek, out That's out of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus actually means something we can't really say in English because we don't have seven verb tenses. We have three, but it means that he, Jesus means Yahweh has saved and is saving and, and will be saving his people. <laughs> and... uh Jesus means that Yahweh is saving us now. It's related to the word sozo and Yahweh. So, um, Luke one twenty six through 38, a bunch of dot, dot, dots, because I couldn't, couldn't put that much of a verse. Uh, the, the parts that are underlying verse 31, oh, I'm sorry, verse, let's start with 26, now the sixth month. Uh, And by the way, the Bible gives us that kind of stuff because the Bible is always emphasizing our God is a God who's outside and above time. He created the time-space continuum for his eternal decrees and for his preordained purposes. And so uh, the Bible... shows us that God is a God of history and that's why it always says that in the time of Caesar Augustus there was a census and so forth and if you go look at all the prophets, almost all the prophets identify where they are in time when the word of the Lord comes to them. In the days of Hezekiah and so, so and so Isaiah and Hosea and different guys lived in it. and you can kind of match it up with that God's, you know, John the Baptist came to a certain place and proclaimed a certain message at a specific time, you know. So that's why it says that the angel Gabriel, on, was in six sixth month is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy for, with John the Baptist. And he was sent to Nazareth. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? To a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. By the way, that was no big deal, like about every fourth lady was named Mary in those days. So uh, it was the most common name in Israel. And behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. We talked a little bit about that already. Uh, Mary said to the angel, how can this be? Compare Mary's response to Zechariah's response. Remember Zechariah, God struck him dumb until John was born, because Zechariah's response was really unbelief. Mary's response was, what is the mode of what's going to happen? Like, in other words, I know this is going to happen. Give me some insight into how. <laughs> you know, like uh, it's, It was really a question of faith versus Zechariah's question that was born out of doubt. He will be great and called son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David. And she says, how can this be? Uh, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. In other words, completely envelop you. A, um, a reference to the cloud, as we talked about in the first message in this series, we talked about eight biblical images of the Holy Spirit, one of which was the cloud. And, uh, you know, Jude calls people who are not walking right with God to call themselves Christians. He calls them clouds without water, Right. The cloud followed Israel by uh, day and in the, in the pillar of fire by night to guide them, just as those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. To be a Christian is fundamentally to be led by the Spirit of God in your motivations, your attitudes, your decisions, and so forth. Um, and then uh, nothing will be impossible with God and so forth. Now, I wish that when I, the CF means confer or compare to, um, I guess I want to just mention them a couple. The Luke one thirty nine through 39-41 is, is something you should look at closely. But it's basically when, when Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, and Mary greets Elizabeth, Elizabeth says, the baby jumped in my womb because uh, babies are spiritual beings. Babies can be filled with the Holy Spirit. Babies can know the Lord, not cognitively, but they know the Lord's presence. I always share one of my most treasured memories that I can hardly talk about without crying, was holding my daughter Carla when she was five days old in a worship meeting where the Holy Spirit's presence was awesomely strong, and I was letting... Catherine had a little break and sit down. And, uh, and, uh, but Carla kept laughing and smiling because she already knew the presence of the Lord for months. Okay, so John the Baptist leaps for joy because Mary uh, is so filled with the Holy Spirit because Jesus is filling her. And then in Luke, in Luke chapter 2, when Jesus is in the temple, he's actually asking the Pharisees questions. And in Jewish tradition, uh, a, a young man was normally old enough to, to have his own vocation and leave home and get married at the age of 16, young women at the age of 14. And, uh, but at the age of approximately 12, sometimes 13, you took, your role, you took your position in adult society by commenting on the scriptures in the temple. And that's what Jesus is doing in Luke 2. He's purposely saying, I am a grown-up in the things of God. I know who I am, and you're about to know who I am when I go public, which was not for another 18 years. And in Hebrew culture, you were considered wise not by the depth of your answers, but by the depth of your questions. And he was asking them questions they couldn't, they couldn't answer. Uh, his encounter in John 3 with Nicodemus is a good example. When Jesus says, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't know what I'm talking about here? I'm talking about very simple spiritual truths and you're supposed to know this stuff. And that's what Jesus was doing in the temple. He was asking them questions to help them become, start to be accustomed to the fact that they were false rabbis and he was the true rabbi who was going to interpret the word of God correctly because they had made a mess of their interpretations. It was very analogous to the evangelical culture of today, which was Bible-believing, so-called, but approaching the Bible with wrong paradigms on almost everything. Therefore, Jesus said, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, in vain do they worship me, teaching as their doctrines the teachings of man. They have paradigms that twist the scripture into man's way of thinking about scripture. That's why we talk so much in this series about man-centered interpretation versus God-centered interpretation. Okay, So that's what's going on in Luke 2. And Jesus could only do that by the Holy Spirit. I, you know, I first John two twenty seven. The anointing teaches you, etc. We could uh, John sixteen thirteen. The Holy Spirit will lead you in all the truth. There's no way Jesus could have those kind of insights except for the fact that he was filled with the Holy Spirit already. If you have anyone who actually has any life giving, um real understandings into god's heart god's law god's word god's ways it has them because of the work of the holy spirit in their life that's why it's so important to cultivate in humility a lifestyle that does not grieve the holy spirit and not to do that by legalisms and, and other kind of things that dry people up and, and and so forth but to find that which god is blessing People, there's about a hundred different ways I try to explain in one or two lines what we're doing. You know, I'll sometimes say, well, we're trying to put content back in biblical words. But one of the things I say is that what we're trying to find is that which God will bless. Because God confirms his word by signs and wonders when it's actually his word. And then we don't have to have like healing seminars and everything else because the power of God will teach us when He's happy with the way we're conducting being His temple as a people together. Uh, I'm going to skip John one because that one took a long time. Uh, let's move on to in uh, number B. Jesus begins his uh, public ministry at approximately age 30, having been filled with the Holy Spirit since conception, of course, and for all eternity, but in in his humanity since conception, as we just covered. But when he presents himself to John, it's the commencement of his public ministry. We're going to talk about that word commencement in a minute. That's an important word. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice of, of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son in whom you're well pleased. Whereas uh, in Mark 9 says this, Matthew 17 says this, and that's the m- Mount of Transfiguration. God speaks out of them in the cloud this. But Luke uses, And you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And, uh, and Mark also uses that. So Mark uses, once he uses this, once he uses you, and the, and the, cup, the context and the meaning are very important here, as we'll try to bring out. Uh, and so what, what we're trying to say is this. Commencement, you know, nowadays, you know, we're uh, getting more and more vocabulary challenged as a culture. And so nowadays people will talk about their graduation. When you used to talk about your commencement, and your commencement is, is really what it is. It's not, it's not a graduation. Because graduation speaks of the end of a thing. And commencement is the end of a thing to begin the beginning of a thing. <laughs> You're about to commence uh, this degree or, in, or you know, the, the knowledge and wisdom and experience that it's supposed to represent. That's an debatable sometimes, but uh, <laughs> uh, especially when I was, uh, never mind, you don't want to know what I was like in high school, but uh, I, I, you know, I could play Frisbee, but um, and I was pretty good at saying, wow, man, and uh, stuff like that, but, uh, but uh, nevertheless, I was commencing a new, new chapter in life, and this diploma was supposed to mean I was equipped to do so. Right, so Jesus is actually kind of done with his growing up and his and and and, uh, everything that he you know confounded the Pharisees with when we talked about in Luke twelve already or Luke two when he was twelve and so forth and he's beginning he's about to go public and some very important things happen that in the progression of the Holy Spirit's ministry in his life at that time. He's already filled with the Holy Spirit, yet the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove in bodily form. Wait a minute, I thought he already had all the Holy Spirit there is to have. (laughs) Uh, Obviously, in John 3.34, it describes Jesus as the one whom God puts the Holy Spirit on without measure. There are clearly measures. That's a hard concept because obviously the Holy Spirit is a person and you can't have uh, Chris-like show up for the pizza party, and he's there, but he's not there. And then we say, well, Chris was there for the first hour, but he, uh, then we got more of Chris in the second hour. Uh, he might have ate more pizza in the second hour. But, uh, <laughs> if he, was, but uh, um, he was pacing himself, you know. And, but, and he, and he might have been more fully present uh, in terms of his heart being there and his mind and his, you know, like he could be worrying about a test or somewhere else than with you or something like that. But clearly in the Bible, the Holy Spirit is in us at at uh, conception, that is at regeneration. And he's in us... Uh, in this, he comes in the same way that he does when he baptizes us in the Holy Spirit in a greater release. And this uh, is, in, is, you know, that there's a reason why at your commencement people make long, boring speeches, and then, but, you know, but then they call your name out and hand you a case that your diploma will eventually be mailed to you <laughs> and put in. It used to be you actually got the diploma, but uh, <laughs> not anymore. You just get like the case. Uh, but even that is a symbol that you're going to get the diploma. Symbols are important biblically. Okay, So the Holy Spirit comes like a dove. Doves are are one of the eight images we covered in the first message. The doves are thought of as purity, gentleness. Uh, there are nine uh, feathers on each wing of the dove, speaking of the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit listed in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through through eleven and the nine fruits of the Holy Spirit listed in Galatians 5, five twenty two and twenty three, and you the Holy Spirit comes to empower you for both, and you can't have the fruits of the Holy Spirit in a godly way without the gifts of the Spirit, nor can you have the gifts of the Spirit in a godly way without the fruits of the Spirit. They must always be hand in hand together. Um, you if you know if the gifts of the Spirit are, are exercised in the wrong. Attitude and motivation and so forth, that's a, that's a big problem. That's why we talked uh, all about John 13, where Jesus sets the model of servant leadership. And we're about to go there in just a second as well. So, um, what happens here is this. The Father, when the Holy Spirit comes, there's a, this is my beloved Son, and you are my beloved Son and what god or sovereignly ordained is that all four of the gospels always add up to the complete picture so this is my beloved son is important because god was bearing witness that jesus was the son of god and in the israel culture when a son reached a certain age of maturity the father would declare publicly in the marketplace this is my beloved son the sea, if you know just like when i put the seal uh, on a deal and, and, and so forth, when he is now authorized to be about his father's business. And whatever he says, the father is saying. Whatever he buys, the father bought. Whatever price he pays, the father paid. And Jesus begins to teach the the things of the father and do the deeds of the father publicly. And God is bearing witness to that, and he does it again at the Mount of Transfiguration, and there's a scene in, I didn't list there, in John, where he does this, where he says, this is my beloved son. So he's telling the world, this is the Messiah, this is Emmanuel, God with us, this is who you've been waiting for. But he also says, you are my beloved son which is to say this, that the Bible says those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. If you study uh, like the book we use called Today's Gospel, uh, which is probably one of the few pretty good books on the gospel we've been able to find, it, it makes a lot of the fact that the Holy Spirit bears witness that you're a son or daughter of God when you're truly converted. That's One of the ways you know that you're truly converted because you have that inner witness that I belong to God and you're free of guilt and shame and, and everything else and you know that you're his special choice and that he's drawn you and forgiven you and recreated you as a new being with a new slate, a new start and a new purpose and a new calling and new things to do. So, the, you know, Romans 8 also says that the Spirit of God uh, cries out, Abba, Father. What this, so what is happening here is God is affirming to the public, and this is my beloved Son, but in you are my beloved Son, he's confirming to Jesus, you are my beloved Son, I'm pleased with you, listen to him, he's going to say my words and so forth, and he's giving Jesus that commissioning, to start to do the deeds of the Father, so both uh, words that, that you, if you read all four Gospels, you'll get both. This is my beloved son, and you are my beloved son, several times. Both of them are very important. And if you uh, want to go back to to some uh, that I didn't get the, that idea, by the way, my out of my uh, deep insights in the Bible that came from a number of ancient church fathers that I read on the subject. So that was the church's understanding in the first few centuries of why the Gospels worded that differently to give a fuller picture. So hopefully we understand that because um, hmm, I might have to make this two weeks. It's not enough time in 40 minutes to cover much. Um, Do I want to Yeah, I think I'm going to end up making this uh, kind of an A and a B because I don't want to shortchange any of these important ideas, so I'll just finish here with the the idea of covenant and baptism. Uh, those of you who go to our right state Bible studies, or it's actually when I did uh, I did the first three chapters of a fifteen part series called "The Kingdom of God." In chapter three, we did about fifteen weeks on uh, called major biblical themes, and one of them was called uh, covenant, and we talked about how all biblical covenants have eight components eight being the number of new creation. And one of those components is all biblical covenants have ceremonies of enactment and ceremonies of renewal. So in the Christian life, for instance, water baptism is a covenantal ceremony of entering the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and and being associated with his people and his church and being in covenant with his people. Okay, Um, The Lord's Supper is a ceremony of renewal Uh, the same covenant over and over and over again. In marriage you have the wedding and you have sexual intimacy between the husband and wife which is a covenantal ceremony of renewal. That's why it's so important part of the marriage and so forth. So um, all covenants have that. And that's why it's so damaging to have that outside of marriage by the way that it will destroy you. Um, Cause great shame and guilt and not things that God can't restore but but there's be a journey just that's more than forgiveness that you'll need to journey with God in a process of restoration so in the Bible math one plus one equals one (laughs) so one plus one plus one also equals one so God the Father God the Son and God the Holy Spirit three persons are one being Jesus Christ has is 100 percent God and he's 100% man, in such a way as the two natures are not uh, confused, but they exist in one person. And Jesus, one plus one equals one. Likewise, in the covenants entering the kingdom of God, water baptism is a complete covenant, covenantal ceremony. It doesn't need any other covenantal ceremony Uh, to to get started. It is renewed at the Lord's table. Uh, Baptized in the Holy Spirit is a covenant ceremony whereby God pours his Spirit on you, begins to empower you with fruits and gifts and a greater release of the Holy Spirit, saying, this is my beloved son or daughter, and so forth. And it's a covenant transaction between the father and uh, his sons and daughters. That's why in Luke 11, he says, "If you, then being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him?" It is not required that you be spiritually mature at all to get baptized in the Spirit. You can. Be, I was still smoking pot and struggling to. You know, I was reading my Bible a little bit and going. You know, observing the Lord's Day about once every six weeks. <laughs> you, know, I, you know, I didn't go to church much because they had it too early in the morning. But uh, I thought, how can anybody get up before noon? But, uh, <laughs> you know, I was, and I was, I, but I had decided I was going to be a follower of Christ. And God baptized me in the Holy Spirit, not because I was some spiritual giant, but because I was so needy. The qualification to get baptized in the Holy Spirit is to be a son or daughter that knows, that's thirsty, and wants more of God. And it would make, God would no longer, no more withhold the baptism in the Spirit from a baby Christian as he, that he would withhold a Bible. And say, you know, John Luke, when you get more serious about reading your Bible, then we'll actually let you have a Bible. Like What sense would that make? <laughs> you know, God gives you the Holy Spirit, not because you've arrived at any spiritual maturity, because you're a son or daughter who needs the Holy Spirit. You know, we just had Susan's first birthday. We're not saying, like, when you graduate from college, then we're really going to love you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> it's just that doesn't happen, okay? So uh, in, in the Bible, baptism in water... Baptism and the Spirit are both covenant ceremonies. We'll see that more deeply next uh, two weeks from now when we go. We're going to spend about two weeks going through the five patterns uh, from the book of Acts. And uh, when we see that, we're going to see that the the apostles themselves accepted when the uh, Gentile Christians were baptized in the Holy Spirit as the fact that God had entered into covenant family with them. And that's why they said then let's water baptize them and take him into the church as well. So, in the Bible, water baptism stands alone as a covenant. Baptism in the Holy Spirit stands alone as a covenant transaction. But the two of them are one covenant transaction at the beginning of your Christian life. Go figure that one out and then explain the incarnation to me next week. Amen. <laughs>